0: God bless you. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1. This will be our third lesson in the book of Hebrews. We started out with an introduction to the book, and then uh, our last study in it, we covered the first verse and just a small portion of the second verse. We're going to read that same section of Scripture this morning. We won't get any further We're going to cover a very important concept that is mentioned there. Let's begin reading Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. Let's go to prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. We ask that you would make us alive to your word. We know that it is already living and active. And we know that Holy Spirit, you work powerfully through your word, but we ask that as we open our Bibles, you would open our hearts and our minds. And that Lord, you would now equip us through the word to live this Christian life, but to witness of and to speak of and to even defend the truths of scripture. Lord, that you would cause us to be expert swordsmen and swordswomen when it comes to handling the word of God. That you would teach us to earnestly contend for the faith once and for all delivered. That you would make us able and ready to give a reason, a defense for the hope that is within us. That you would so minister to our hearts now the truth of the identity of the person of Jesus Christ. That it would not only have an incredible impact upon the way that we live and will live as the days go by and get increasingly difficult for the Christian. But that we would be able to effectively communicate these beautiful truths to a lost, dying, hurt world. So minister to us and equip us to minister now, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It is important that we call to mind the context for the book of Hebrews. You'll remember that the world is under the hand of the Roman Empire. And Nero now is in charge of the Roman Empire. And Nero has levied some charges against Christians. And in light of those charges, Christians are now experiencing government-sanctioned persecution. They were previously being persecuted by the Jews. They are now being persecuted as well by the Romans. And their religion, Christianity, has become an illegal religion in the Roman Empire. And it's a capital offense. And these Hebrew Christians, quite possibly in Rome, when they receive this letter, are feeling the weight of the reality of the political world around them. And how it has collided with their religious world. And it seems inevitable to them that some of them may shed their blood for their faith in Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews is writing to encourage them. He's writing to strengthen them. He's writing them because they're beginning to falter. Some of them are beginning to fail. They're beginning to fear. And this moment for them is the moment. It's the moment where the rubber meets the road. It's the moment where their faith is going to be tested and tried. It's the moment where perseverance is going to be necessary. It is the moment where they're going to have to cling to the rock that is higher than them. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to encourage, to exhort, and to equip them. And his strategy for doing so is to illuminate, is to hold forth, is to exegete, is to explain the person of Jesus Christ. In endeavoring to strengthen them as difficult days are ahead, what the author does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is hold forth the person of Jesus Christ. Because that is the only thing that's going to make a difference when our worlds begin to fall apart. Who we believe Jesus is. Now, who you believe Jesus to be will dictate how you interact with him. The way that you pray says something about your theology, about your view of God. Whom you go to first in the moment of difficulty, in the moments of of uncertainty, reveals what your theology is, what you believe about Jesus Christ. And he wanted them to be so sure about the person and the identity and the deity of Jesus Christ. That when difficult times came, they would not be shaken. They would be as Mount Zion, which will not be moved. They would be firm and firmly planted in the faith that was once and for all delivered. And he begins by telling them that God has communicated to humanity, namely the fathers, through the prophets... In various portions and in various ways throughout history. And we spoke of that in our last lesson. We spoke of general revelation and special revelation. But none of that was complete. And so it says in verse 2, In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. Everything God wants to communicate to humanity is in the person of Jesus Christ. It It is in the Son. Jesus is the fullness of God's revelation. Amen? Everything else is complete. He's the final piece of the puzzle. He's the part that causes everything else to make sense. Jesus is. In Jesus, God's communication and revelation is full and finished. There's nothing more to say. In these last days, God has spoken to us in His Son. And there is no understanding of God apart from the Son. We must uphold that truth in this world, saints. There is no understanding of God apart from the person of Jesus Christ because the world would declare that there are many ways. And religions are currently contending about the validity of their chosen way. But Jesus said there is one way to the Father. He claimed that He was the way, the truth, and the life. Cannot understand God apart from the person of Jesus Christ. And so endeavoring to strengthen these frail saints in their faith, the author presents to them Jesus in all his fullness. And look how we have Jesus presented just in chapter one. Just in chapter one, we learn that he is the son of God and he is the heir of all things. He's a sustainer of the universe and the creator of the world. He's the radiance of God's glory He is the exact representation of God's nature. Jesus is the high priest of perfection. He is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. He has a more excellent name. He is the one whom the angels worship. He is the exalted king. He's the Lord of righteousness, the anointed one, the eternal one, the unchanging one. And Jesus is the ultimate conqueror. And that is just one chapter of this glorious book. But we see here, Jesus revealed. Now, I want to deal today with just the author's first assertion about Jesus Christ. And that is that Jesus is the Son of God. That's the first truth that he holds forth to the Hebrew Christians. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? What does that mean? If you're a Christian, you certainly have an idea of what that means, but could you intelligently communicate that from scripture to somebody who has an opposing view? Because Paul wrote to Timothy and said that all Christians should be able to correct with gentleness those who are in opposition. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is the son of God? And how do we know? Because the term son of God has been used throughout history for many different people. In the Bible, angels on occasion are called sons of God. In Genesis chapter 6, Deuteronomy chapter 32, Psalm 29, Psalm 89, and other places, angels are referred to as sons of God. In the Bible, kings in the line of David are called sons of God and individually the son of God. 2 Samuel 7, 14, Psalm 2, 7, Psalm 89, so on and so forth. Speak of kings in the line of David as the sons of God. It was a common title in the context of the Bible that is the Near East in ancient times. It was a common title for royalty. Kings were often referred to as the son of God. Assyrian kings were regarded as the adopted sons of God. A common title for royalty in the context of the Bible. To further complicate things, Israelites were also referred to as the sons of God. Deuteronomy 14, Isaiah 1, Jeremiah 3, Hosea 1, Hosea 11, so on and so forth. Some ancient Jewish men were called sons of God, we know from rabbinical literature. In that time and in that age, righteous men were called the son of God because of their good moral standing before God in the community. There is the son of God referring to merely a righteous man. And finally, Scripture calls Christians, you and I, sons of God. Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 9, and Philippians 2. And furthermore, God has spoken through all of these various sons of God. God has spoken through angels. God has spoken through kings. God has spoken through Jewish holy men. And God definitely speaks through Christians. So in light of those things, what makes Jesus any different? What does it mean then that Jesus is the son of God? How are we to suppose, if we are to suppose, that Jesus is unique when so many others throughout history and even in the Bible have been called sons of God? Well, five ways that I'll suggest to you this morning. Five points that we'll cover. Number one, his oneness with the father expresses Jesus as being unique. In his sonship. Number two. His pre-existence testifies. That he is a unique son of God. Number three. His ability to give life. Number four. His authority to judge and forgive sins. And number five. His resurrection from the dead. Number one. What sets Jesus Christ apart. As the son of God. His oneness with the father. I want us to see this expressed in the gospel of John chapter 10. Go to John chapter 10 if you would. John chapter 10. Starting in verse 22. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. The Feast of the Dedication is that ancient Jewish celebration that we call Hanukkah today. So it was Hanukkah. Jesus was in Jerusalem for Hanukkah. We're approaching the time of Hanukkah, right? Very cool. Verse 23 It was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews, therefore, gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. They would have said, if you are the Messiah. You understand, you know that Christ is a Greek word that means anointed one. Christos in the Greek. In Hebrew, it was Mashiach, Messiah, we would say. So they would have asked him, How do we know? Tell us if you are the Messiah the anointed one, the anointed one with special connotations, the anointed one who was anointed to redeem Israel, the one who was spoken of by the prophets, the one who was predicted in the scriptures, the one that was expected to deliver Israel salvifically and nationally, the Messiah. They said, don't keep us in suspense anymore. If you are the Messiah, the Christ, Christos, Mashiach, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, I've already told you and you didn't believe and the works that I do in my father's name, these bear witness of me. He says, I've already revealed myself as a Messiah. I'm not being esoteric. I'm not being sneaky. I'm not being covert. I have tried to reveal to you my identity. You don't believe it. That's your problem. And the works I do testify to the reality of who I am. Then he says in verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Ouch. Then look what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Uh, Those of you that went to Israel with us, do you remember a story um, if you were on my bus? we We were coming around the east side of the ancient walls of the city Uh, So near that Muslim graveyard, next to the the Kidron Valley, there, and uh, right there on our right, the ancient walls was the uh, Sheep Gate. The Sheep Gate, and the Sheep Gate is the ancient gate where uh, it it was the sheep market, and and their sheep were sold for sacrifices in the temple and trade, so on and so forth. And in fact, it was a sheep market just up until a few years ago in that very location. Do you remember the story that our tour guide told us that uh, just a few years ago a Bedouin had had his sheep stolen? And uh, he was in the region of Jerusalem and he figured, okay, where am I going to go find my sheep? Somebody stole my sheep. I'll go to the sheep market. No doubt uh, this guy who stole my sheep was trying to sell them. And this Bedouin goes and walks into the middle of the sheep market, hundreds and hundreds of sheep all around. And he lifts up his voice and he begins to call out their names. And one by one, his sheep separate themselves from the crowd and follow him as he walks down the street. (laughs) You see, there was a context here when Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. Because sheep in Israel know the voice of the shepherd even to this day. Now continuing on in verse 28, he says, and I give eternal life to them and they shall never perish and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Notice, that his sheep are in his hand and in the Father's hand. Verse 30 is what I want you to see. I and the Father are one. Jesus here makes a very important claim. He says that He and the Father. Now when he said the Father, it was understood by all of his hearers that he was referencing the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was speaking of the God of Israel. And he said here, I and the father are one. Now that might mean a lot of things to us, to our ears, to our context, to the way that we listen, that might mean a lot of things. There might be some new age connotations attached to that. We, we, we might just think of that in a whole lot of ways, but part of what you want to do when you're studying the Bible is you want to get a grasp on the context that the people lived in who were hearing it originally. How would they have heard it? That's how you've got to hear the Bible. That's why we do historical studies and contextual studies. Because the context will deliver to us the correct meaning of the text. How did the hearers of that day understand Jesus when he said, I and the Father are one? Well, their response makes it very clear to us. Verse 31, the Jews therefore took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them and said, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him and said, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They understood that Jesus was making a clear claim to deity, that he was claiming to be God to be one with the Father. Remember, <coughs> excuse me, that the mantra of Israel from Deuteronomy was the Lord our God is one. Adonai elohenu, Adonai Echad in Hebrew. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is the pronouncement, that is the mantra, that is the doctrine in the theology of Israel. There is one God. Echad in the Hebrew, One. And Jesus comes along and says, I and the Father are one. And they understood him to be claiming deity there. Now, what was meant when Jesus said that he and the Father are one? Let me tell you first of all what he did not mean. Jesus did not mean that he was the Father. He did not mean that he was the Father. He did not mean that he and the Father are the same person. What he did mean is that they are one in essence or being, but are two distinct persons. He claimed to be one with the Father in essence, in being, but they maintain distinction as to their person. Now, if we bring the Holy Spirit into the picture, then we have the complete picture of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, what that doesn't mean that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what that does not mean is that they are three different gods. That is not the historic orthodox view of the Trinity. That is not what Scripture expresses. They are not three different gods. That is a historical blunder known as tritheism. Tritheism, the belief that the three persons of the Trinity are three separate gods. Rather, the three persons make up the one God. What we do not mean when we say that is that this one God manifests himself in three different modes. We do not mean that. That God manifests himself in three different modes in time. This is a historic wonder known as modalism which we reject as being heresy and not the historic orthodox Christian faith. For example, some believe that God is one, but that He manifested Himself at one time as Creator. At another time, He manifested Himself as Redeemer. And at another time, as Sanctifier. Sort of like one actor playing three roles. Modalism. That is not what Scripture communicates. Instead, Scripture communicates... Three distinct but coexisting persons in the divine nature. Three distinct persons that coexist in one divine nature, the Godhead. Now, as I attempt to explain this, already the confusion has set in. It is, after all, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's not easily understandable. We are talking about the very nature of God. And there are just some things about God that we cannot really understand. To a certain degree, it is a mystery. We can speak about it. We can think about it. We can see it clearly taught in Scripture. But we cannot fully lay hold of it intellectually. But I love what the theologian G.K. Chesterton once said. He said, if God were simple enough for me to understand then God would not be great enough to meet my needs, nor would He be worthy of my worship. We just can't understand everything about the nature of God. But Scripture clearly communicates that God is one, but there are three distinct persons coexisting eternally as that one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now immediately, the human mind grasps for analogy. And there is no competent analogy for the triunity of God. It just doesn't exist. The most popular one is folly. And that is the analogy of water. We like to speak about water existing in three states. Solid, liquid, and gas, right? Ice, water, and vapor. And we like to say how that is analogous to the Trinity. But that is a poor illustration. For this reason. Because no given drop of water is in all three states at the same time. You understand? It's either ice or water or vapor. God is not either. He is one at all times. You see how the analogy falls apart very quickly. That analogy expresses perhaps inadvertently in spite of good intentions, that analogy expresses modalism. That God is sometimes the Father, sometimes the Son, sometimes the Spirit, sometimes Creator, sometimes Redeemer, sometimes Sanctifier. That's a heresy that we reject as being non-biblical. Modalism denies the plurality of persons in God, while tritheism denies the absolute unity of God. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, He is speaking of the oneness and threeness of God. He's speaking of the unity and the triunity of God. One God existing eternally in three distinct but not separate persons. To use the word separate would be incorrect. They're not separate. They coexist as one. And yet they are distinct as persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So inseparable are the members of the Trinity in their essence that to not properly acknowledge any one of them at any time as God is to not properly acknowledge God. The unity of God dictates that each member of the Trinity is God and is to be worshiped as such. Amen. That's good news because sometimes people say to me, can I worship the Holy Spirit? Yes, you can. Can I worship Jesus? Yes, you can. Can I worship the father? Yes, you can. Who am I worshipping when I'm worshipping God? You're worshipping the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one. Now that brings to mind another heresy, which I don't have in my notes, but it just comes to mind, and that is subordinationism. Subordinationism was a view held by Justin Martyr in the late 2nd century and Origen, the early church father in the early 3rd century. And the idea there was that Jesus was subordinate to the father in nature. That only the Father possessed the fullness of deity. And Jesus was something less in nature. Subordinationism. We reject that. It is very clear from scripture that Jesus was subordinate in functionality. Right? I only do what the Father tells me to do, he says. He was submitted to the Father. But in him dwelt the fullness of deity, Colossians chapter 2 says. He was not subordinate in nature, but he was submitted in mission to the Father. So these three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have existed as one forever. And that's our second point as to what makes Jesus unique as the Son of God. And that is his pre-existence. I want you to go to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, very familiar passage for many of us, verse 1, in the beginning, in the beginning, that is to say before Genesis 1, 1, when God began creation, in the beginning was the Word. Now, who is the Word? Jesus. Logos in the Greek, if there's any doubt as to who that is, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus. Jesus. Is the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here we see the distinction in personality, but the unity in essence. He was with God, but he was God. The nature of the Trinity. Eternally coexisting as one God. Turn to John chapter 8 as we see it illuminated further. John chapter 8 verses 58 and 59. John 8:58 Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am I am egō me in the Greek I am before Abraham was I am He uses a verb there to exist a me in the present tense before Abraham was past tense I am Jesus is speaking of his pre existence, that he is eternal, that he always has been. And he is simultaneously declaring himself to be God, the God that the Israelites knew is God. Because when Moses stood before the bush that was on fire, he said, Whom shall I say, send me? And God said, I am. And Jesus comes and says, before Abraham, whom you esteem very highly, you Jews, and who was a long time ago, I am. Jesus speaks in no uncertain terms of his pre-existence, his eternal existence. Now, we may take exception to that, but how did they hear it in context? It's very clear. Verse 59, therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. Again, they were accusing Jesus here of blasphemy, which was punishable by death, by stoning. And so they wanted to stone him. Look at John 17 now. As you see Jesus speak further of his preexistence, which testifies to his uniqueness as a son of God that sets him apart from everyone else in history who has been called the son of God. John chapter 17, verse 5. Jesus here praying to the Father and says, says in verse 5, And now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The glory that I had with you before the world was. Now, he's claiming preexistence here. He says, I was with the Father in glory before the world ever was. And he is also claiming deity with the God of Israel. Because what did the Jews know the God of Israel to say in Isaiah 42 verse 8? I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another. And when Jesus says glorify me with you with the glory that I had before the foundations of the world. He is claiming simultaneously his deity and his subsequent pre-existence. It is important that we understand that Jesus was not created, contrary to what Jehovah's Witnesses say and other twisters of Scripture. Jesus was not created. He is eternal along with the Father and the Spirit. He is uncreated. Do not misunderstand the term begotten as employed in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now, that's an English word trying to describe a Greek word and doing an imperfect job thereof. Because the English word begotten has some ideas attached to it about giving forth, birthing, creating. Right? But the Greek word had no such connotations at any time ever. Monogonase, monogonase is a Greek word and it means pertaining to being the only one of its kind within a specific relationship, one and only, pertaining to being the only one of its kind or class, unique. The correct expression there in John 3.16, according to the original text, is that Jesus is the one and only unique Son of God, that there is no other like him in existence. That is not speaking of his birth. It's not speaking of him being created because he has always been. He is the uncreated one, Jesus is. And so we can't misunderstand that as some have misunderstood that and gone into error. Now, that leads us to our third point as to what sets Jesus apart as the Son of God. And that is his ability to give life. I want us to turn to John 10. John chapter 10. We read over the portion, but I want us to look at it a little more closely. John chapter 10. Verse 27 again, that beautiful verse. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And look what Jesus says in verse 28. And I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Jesus here, in no uncertain terms, claims to be able to give eternal life to those who follow him. He says, I give eternal life to them. He does not appeal to anybody else. I, in and of myself, Jesus says, am able to impart eternal life to people. Now that is no-brainer here. A prerogative that is reserved for God and God alone. Amen? No king could give eternal life. No angel could grant eternal life. No Jewish wise man could grant eternal life. That is a prerogative reserved for deity alone. Jesus sets him apart from everyone else in history called the Son of God by the fact that he can give in and of himself eternal life. Not only eternal life, but he can confer initial life. Go, if you will, to John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, we have the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. Those of you that went to Israel with us, you remember when we were there right by St. Anne's Church and we sang there and then we uh, sat near the pool of Bethesda and we talked about this story. So anyway, this guy's been laying there for a lot of years and Jesus comes along in a wonderful act of chesed, mercy, and heals him. And verse 15 is where we pick it up. That man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, there's a great picture of backward religion. The man has been healed. He was crippled and lame. He had been laying on his side for years. Jesus comes along and heals him and the religious people are upset because it was done on the Sabbath. Don't ever be that person. But now... In light of what Jesus is going to say next, the nature of their accusation and the fervency of their frustration is going to change. Jesus says in response in verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. Now, what does that mean? In our ears, it doesn't mean much. I mean, so what? Your dad's working and you're working. Big deal. My dad shaped surfboards. I shape surfboards. What? That doesn't mean, what? What? My father is working and I am working. Well, Jesus here denotes a special relationship with the father. He says, my father. Possessive pronoun, my, my father. The Jews believe God to be father, but they would say our father, but they never really said my father. Jesus doesn't only come along and say my father, but he says Abba father. He claims special relationship, but then he claims unity with, or oneness with, when he says, my father is working, and I myself am working. That's how the Jews understood it. Verse 18, for this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, and making himself equal with God. So here we have another explicit claim to deity. Now what I want you to see is in the next couple of verses. Verse 19, Jesus therefore answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. There we see that uh, uh, functional subordination. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him that you may marvel. Look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. This blew the minds of everybody that is listening. Jesus just claimed... To have the ability to do that only something God the creator could do. That was to give life. Jesus reveals himself to be the life giver. He says that he has the ability to give initial life, physical life, and eternal life. And that separates him from every other religious leader in the history of the world. Amen. That separates him from everybody else. The power... To have life in oneself and to bestow life to others is a prerogative reserved only for deity. Jesus claims to be able to do that. Now the next point is that Jesus has authority to judge and to forgive sins. Another divine prerogative. I want you to turn to... Oh, we're in John 5. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 of John 5. For not even the Father judges anyone, But he has given all judgment to the Son in order that all may honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Jesus there claims that he's a judge. Now the Jews understood that there was only one judge of the universe and he was God. Jesus claims to have the authority to judge. That means that he is God. Now, it's even more potent as we see it displayed in Mark chapter 2. Go to Mark chapter 2. Who loves the sound of Bible pages turning? I love it, it's beautiful. Mark chapter 2, this is a wonderful story. Uh, We're just going to start from verse 1 to get the context. Mark 2 verse 1. And when Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now stop right there. That's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Praise the Lord for these four individuals. It was so crowded. So many people wanted to hear what Jesus had to say that you couldn't even get near the door. But they knew that this man needed Jesus. And so they endeavored to do for their friend whatever had to be done to get him in front of Jesus. So they went up on the roof and they begin to tear off the roof. And you can imagine the people are like, are those rats? What's going on? What's happening on the roof? And Jesus, because he's omniscient, knows what's happening. He's going, this is cool, man. They're taking off the roof to get this cat in front of me. And they tore off the roof and they lowered their friend who had a need down to the feet of Jesus. Now that ought to communicate to us. We have to do whatever needs to be done to get our loved ones to the feet of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Tear off the roof if need be, but get that man at the feet of Jesus. And so the man is at the feet of Jesus. And I want you to know what Jesus does. Verse 5. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes sitting there. And reasoning in their hearts, this is what they said inside themselves, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And theologically speaking, these scribes were absolutely correct for once. They were absolutely right in what they thought. Only God can forgive sins. Why is this man saying this other man's sins are forgiven? Next verse. And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? They were so busted right there. <laughs> Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk? A rhetorical question. Obviously, it's easier just to say your sins are forgiven. Who can necessarily prove that? But to say to someone who's paralyzed, get up and walk, now that's going to denote some power. That's going to prove something. Verse 10, But in order that you may know that the Son of Man, another title for Jesus, it will address another time, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up the pallet and went out in the sight of all so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God saying, we've never seen anything like this. That's cool, right? Jesus demonstrates to the whole world that he has the authority as the judge of the world and he has the authority to forgive sins. Now, these points set apart Jesus Christ from anyone who's ever been called the son of God. Because people will come to you and say, well, Jesus says he was the son of God, so what? So were kings in the Davidic line. So were Assyrian kings. It was a common title for royalty in that time. Lots of people have been called the son of God, but wait a minute. Not lots of people were one in essence with the father, Not lots of people are pre existent. Not lots of people have the ability to give life and eternal life. And not everybody has the authority to judge and to forgive sins. Only Jesus Christ alone. This speaks in no uncertain terms of the deity of Jesus Christ. We see that he makes radical and absolute claims about his unique identity. Claims that set him apart from anyone else in history. He's not like the angels. It's not like the Israelites. He's not like kings. He's absolutely unique. But here's what's interesting some of those kings in ancient times who assumed themselves to be adopted by deity and then took for themselves the title the Son of God demanded of others that they worship them. Kings, the Caesars did the same thing. They required worship of people. Jesus, did you notice this? Jesus never required of any of his followers that they worship him. He never did. He never said to any of them, you must worship me. Instead, what he did was clearly reveal his identity in what he said and the power that he displayed. And so subsequently people did worship him. Matthew chapter 14, after He calmed the seas. And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were on the boat worshipped Him saying, You are certainly God's Son. And what is poignant for us to remember here is that Jesus, if they were in error, would have stopped them. Amen? He had no problem stopping people who were in theological error. And when they worshipped Him, and a Jew only worshipped God, when they worshipped Him and He received it, it was another declaration of his deity, and we see Jesus worshiped all throughout the Gospels. Matthew chapter 8, verse 2, he's worshiped. Matthew chapter 9, verse 8. Matthew 15, 25. Matthew 20, 20. Matthew 28, 17. Mark 5, 6. John 9, 38. John 20, 28. Jesus receives worship and he never rebukes him because he is God. Now, when you look at the claims of Christ and you take into consideration The historicity of the Gospels, that is to say, are the Gospels historically reliable first century documents? Having done my homework, I will tell you they are, but you better do your own homework. By every measure of literary and scientific validity, the Gospels have historicity. They are a reliable source as to the person and ministry and identity of Jesus Christ. So then if you take seriously the historicity of the Gospels and then you examine the claims of the person of Jesus Christ, you've got to make up your mind. You cannot be indifferent to the person of Jesus Christ. His claims are too radical. And what you're left with is a trilemma. You've heard of a dilemma, right? Right? Dilemma is a situation in which a difficult choice has to be made between two alternatives. You get in dilemmas all the time. Oh, I got a dilemma. (laughs) But this is a trilemma. And here's the trilemma. In light of who Jesus claimed to be, there are only three options available to us to explain his claims. Logically speaking, now, we can only come to one of three conclusions either Jesus was a liar, or a lunatic, or he is Lord you got a trilemma. And you can't be indifferent, created one. You don't have the right to be indifferent to the person of Jesus Christ. You've been presented with some real serious truth today and you've got to make up your mind. Now it's your mind, you make it up. Jesus claimed absolute exclusivity and deity and to be the second member of the Trinity. Was he lying? Well... Let's look at the evidence. Jesus told people to be honest. At whatever the cost, he told people to be honest. Are we to believe that he was living a complete lie? Possibly. That would have made him a hypocrite. Are we to believe that Jesus was a liar and a hypocrite? Well, if you do believe that, then don't you dare ever call him a great moral teacher again. That's what people do all the time, right? Jesus, he was a great moral teacher. Wait, listen, you're an idiot. (laughs) Hypothetically speaking. If you believe that, if you don't believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but he's a great moral teacher, my brother, you got a logical problem on your hands. Because if he isn't who he claimed to be, then one of your options is that he's a liar, and so how can you call him a great moral teacher if he was a liar and a deceiver? That doesn't make any sense. Stop that. Stop calling him a great moral teacher. If he's not the Lord of the universe, he certainly is not a great moral teacher. He's a liar and he's a deceiver. You see, Jesus' is liar just does not fit the facts. Are we to believe that he lied throughout his life and then that he maintained that lie at the cost of his life? Some of such a deceiver of such low moral character. Are we to believe that he went through the whole scourging and the beating and took all three nails and maintained the lie? Come on, surely you would have stopped after one nail. Okay, 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 you got me. I'm, I'm, I'm lying. You see, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, The facts don't fit that Jesus was a liar. And so he must have really thought he was telling the truth. Let's not give him the benefit of the doubt yet. Let's not say he is Lord, but he definitely, it's only logical, he definitely was convinced that he was telling the truth or he wouldn't have died for it. Now, it's possible to be sincere, but to be wrong, right? I've been that before. It's possible to be sincere and be wrong. Maybe Jesus was just sincerely wrong. He really thought that he was God in the flesh and he wasn't. To tell people that you're God and to tell others that their eternal destiny depends on them believing in you would make you a lunatic in the highest sense of the word. Now, the measure of one's looniness. The measure of one's insanity is the size of the gap between what one thinks himself to be and what one really is. The measure of insanity is the size of the gap between what you think you are and what you really are. For example, if you say to me, I'm a little butterfly, you're really insane, You're very far from being a butterfly. You're very insane. You're not a little nutty. You're loony loony. How much further the gap of a man claiming to be the creator and Lord of all the universe. That would be the height of insanity. Jesus was definitely convinced that he was God. Was he a lunatic? How are we to think that Jesus is a lunatic when we see how lucid he was in his speech? When we see how incredibly tight his logic was, how persuasive his words, how potent his life, how irresistible his love to prostitutes and sinners and tax gatherers. How are we to assume that such a man was a lunatic? You see, it just doesn't fit the facts. And so there's only one option left, that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the only logical solution in light of the evidence that we have before us. And Romans 10, 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Jesus is Lord. Have you confessed him? Do you recognize him as Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead? If you do, the Bible says that you shall be saved. The ultimate proof that Jesus is Lord is found in the final point. Christ's resurrection from the dead. We'll finish just by reading four verses in Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. The final point that sets Jesus apart from every other religious figure that shows him to be the only unique son of God is his resurrection from the dead and that's what the scriptures say. Romans 1 verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his Son. Who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, and who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Nobody else in the history of the world has ever, number one, claimed to have the authority to deal with your sins, number two, to offer to give Himself for your sins. And number three, predicted and pulled off their own resurrection from the dead. Nobody in the history of the world has ever done that except for the person of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who said, I will pay your debts. And to authenticate his claims, Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now what is your problem? What is your problem in life? Jesus is God. He'll handle you. Why are you resisting His love? He's your creator and the creator of all the universe. He's drawing you. What is going on in your life? Jesus Christ is big enough to deal with it. That was the message of the author of the book of Hebrews to the Hebrew Christians who are frightened and afraid and unsure and threatened. Jesus is the Son of God. And that brought comfort to those that day. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It's great and awesome and it's good. We thank you for these potent and beautiful truths. And Lord, we pray today that these truths would not be lost on us. Lord, hundreds of us would ask right now that if there's anybody in here that's never received the forgiveness of sins, that it would happen for them today. Hundreds of us ask now that that individual will call upon you that they would repent of their sins, that they'd be willing to say, God, I've been really wrong and you are absolutely right. God, I'm a sinner, but you're a savior. Forgive me of my sins. Forgive me according to what Jesus Christ did on the cross. I don't understand it all, but I want it all. Lord, don't let a single person leave this room today without recognizing who you are. Your love, your mercy, your power, your cross, your coming again. And Lord, for those of us who already know you, would you please make us bold stewards of these truths? Having learned them, we are now entrusted with them. And we are called into a stewardship to communicate the truth of the person of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying, hurt, murderous world. Lord help us would you loosen our lips with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to represent you Lord in all your glory and all your power and all your deity in the fullness of who you are. Jesus your name is above every name. We just name that name Jesus. Just say Jesus. Jesus your name is above every name. We exalt you, Jesus. Your name is above every other name. We choose to get off the throne of our lives and to have you be enthroned. We're sorry for the times that we've been our God. We repent of that. We're sorry for the times that we've taken the reins of our own lives. You alone are God. Come and rule and reign as a good king over us and communicate these beautiful truths through us, Lord.